Hello and welcome to Flowing Backwards. Uh, it's a podcast by me, Phil Peak, and the man from Mosley, Mr. Ian for Candles Moss. This episode is um, slightly, um, how do I say it, maudling, but it had some funny parts in it. It had some nice parts in it, and it had some poignant parts in it. Nothing good, part one. Now, all I ask you to do is sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello there. Uh, I've been missing you. We've not done one of these for a while, although we have broadcast a couple uh, lately. It's been a, a month or so since Phil and I got together for various reasons of sort of technical and psychological of life, basically, interrupting our flow. Well, here we are back again, and we are flowing backwards once again. This episode is called Nothing Good One. If I was younger, I might well uh, have called it Bad Vibes One. Um, and on that note, I'm going to read you the customary uh, verse, and uh, I'm going to read you a verse called Bad vibes. It's about, um, or in part, it's about a friend of mine who, uh, who the Buddhists didn't like, and they threw him out uh, of, of their enclave. Anyway, here we go. An ersatz hippie. Good vibes would wish. It was all part of his gibberish. It was meaningless fakery. His sweetness from the bakery. I was fundamentally more sour. I'd had my innocence devoured. That had led me to analyse a tapestry which I despised. I gave off bad vibes. I was a bad vibe dude. I wore steel toe-cap shoes. I gave off bad vibes. I was a bad vibes guy. I kissed a girl who made her cry. Bad vibe guy. Bad vibe guy. A spying through my evil eye. The Buddhist centre was a nice scene, tranquil, meditative, serene. They kept the world at arm's length and didn't instill me with confidence. I said you solve nothing, you just avoid problems blocking out the noise. My karma interfered with theirs. Peace gave way to angry glares. I gave off bad vibes. I was a bad vibe soul. Not so easy to control. I gave off bad vibes. I was a bad vibes cat. Disturbing their cosy habitat. Bad vibe guy. Bad vibe guy. No hiding from my evil eye. Banished by the Buddhists for the crime of disharmony. Banished by the Buddhists for disturbing tranquility. A bad vibe guy, a bad vibe guy, with mischief in my evil eye. Bad vibe guy, bad vibe guy, I don't wish to be purified. Uh, there you go. That's uh, today's verse over and done with. So this is nothing good, part one. Um, and to contradict myself, I'll start off with something good. Um, so um, I was um, I was at Manchester Pride, and and I was stood there. I was at the live stage watching some dreadful um, camp disco act, and I saw this lad, this attractive lad, keep 
firm eyeing me up and eventually sidled over and started making conversation and uh, flattering me about my appearance. His opening line was, I love your pro keds, which meant nothing to me. I thought, what are my pro keds? You know, is it me ears or something? Uh, apparently it was me pumps. Um, anyway, he, he liked them. And what was weird, because it built up how great I looked, was he was um, the fashion editor for uh, a very well-known uh, gay publication, no less. And he was on an all-expenses jaunt to Pride, and uh, he took me to dinner, and then uh, we, we retired to his very posh hotel room, and uh, he invited, I was going to London the next weekend to see the Stooges, no less, and he invited me to go and stay with him, which I did, um, which was less fun, actually. It was weird, it was, it, it got, it was a, he had a, he had, he had a, there was some weird sexual behaviour went on that um, when it, when I was going home the next day, I looked, uh, I looked as if snails had been crawling over me. Um, I'll leave that to your imagination. Anyway, I was going to, I was going to see the Stooges. I couldn't believe the Stooges. You know, the Stooges had reformed. The, the sort of band who had dominated um, my musical listening for for. for for at least 10 years of my life, you know. The band who's Funhouse, um, I, I still maintain, is the greatest sort of um, rock and roll, stroke, free jazz collision of pure noise and energy that I've ever heard. And the original Stooges, except for uh, the bass player, Dave Alexander, who long dead, were, um, were reformed to play Funhouse at Hammersmith uh, Odeon. It used to be. I don't think it's called that anymore. It's 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 everything's called you know the Carling something you know or the hypnosis this you know or the uh, Coca Cola that I don't know. It's got some stupid name anyway, but it's Hammersmith Odeon. Um, so so off I went to Hammersmith Odeon to see the Stooges. I can't remember. I went twice because they, they played they played this gig playing playing Funhouse. And then, uh, very sadly, Ron Asherton died, the guitar player from the Stooges, and it looked like they couldn't carry on. But um, what they did was um, James Williamson, uh, who had played on Raw Power, then came back into the fold, and, and they played the Ziggy of the Stooges, and they played at the uh, Carling Optrex uh, Curly Whirly Hammersmith Odeon. Um, again and played uh, played raw power this time uh, anyway on one of these occasions suicide with a support act it was the last time i saw suicide and i absolutely love suicide though i do have to say uh hammersmith they were absolutely fucking abysmal really just just abysmal uh, it wasn't good um but there you go um so what was weird was was I was stood there waiting, and I um, I came across this guy who, who I've only ever seen intermittently. The first time I ever met him was on the bus returning home from uh, the the famous Sex Pistols gig in June of 1976 at the Lesser Free Trade Hall, and he was delighted to see me. He said, "Come, come, come, come!" And he pushed me over, and he'd got his teenage daughter with him, and he said, "She won't believe." that I've ever seen the Sex Pistols. Tell her 
where we first met. So I said, I met your dad at the Sex Pistols gig. And she was she was amazed. And I looked up and it was one of those perfect sort of Zelig moments because stood directly in front of us was Sex Pistols drummer Paul Cook. So I said, and he played the drums. So I attracted Paul Cook's attention and we had a, had a chat. Uh, I owed him uh, a big thank you because I'd, at one stage I'd swapped a T-shirt with, with Paul. He'd given me this um, Vivian Westwood Anarchy in the UK T-shirt. Um, and in extremely hard times, which I've often had uh, when I was penniless, uh, my friend Alan um, sold it for me on eBay and got £823 for this tatty old T-shirt, which did rather bail me out of the hole. So I thanked Paul Cook for that, and he said, very, very nicely, uh, pleased to be of assistance. So there we are, we started with something something nice. I thought we'd start with something nice. So uh, let's get onto nothing good, um, because that's what the episode's called. So I'm at work, I'm still working on Smithfield Market, and my working day begins at 2 a.m. and it ends around um, 10 a.m. Um, so it's it's the hours are trying. It's hard work. You know, you're in an outdoor space. So in the winter, particularly, you know, you could be working all all night in minus 12, minus 13, handling freezing cold produce. And, uh, and there's a lot of heavy lifting involved. And um, I'm not frightened of all that, but um, I started to feel um, quite ill. I started experiencing chest pains and uh, dizziness, breathing difficulties. And I would have uh, hot and cold flushes. I'd, the dizziness was the real worry. Um, every time I went I, I down to pick up something, I would get all dizzy and, and never collapsed or anything. But um, but it, 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 it wasn't good. There was something going wrong and I started um, um, trying to negotiate with my boss to, to reduce my hours. I thought that might do me some good. Uh, he pointed out that he, 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 I was a, a salesman for him. He pointed out that he couldn't have his senior salesman working part-time. It sent out all the wrong messages to the other staff and to the customers. And uh, and I did appreciate um, that. You know, and, and, and I liked the job in, in a lot of ways, just the hours I hated. Um, but I met some nice people. I met, um, for instance, a fella called Mark Ward, who um, who's had um, a firm on uh, Covent Garden Market in London, and, and and he was somebody that I bought produce off over the telephone, and uh, I told him I quite fancied going to this hop farm festival one day as we were chatting on the on the telephone. Prince was headlining it. The Stooges were playing again. Patty Smith was playing. Lou Reed was playing. The Human League were playing. You know, it's it sounded it sounded great. I really fancied it. And uh, he said, "Oh, he said I'm going to that." He said, "I only live a mile away." He said, "I'll tell you what. I'll treat you." And uh, and he did. He bought he bought he bought me and and my partner uh, tickets. For the event, and um, 
and and housed us. And when I say housed us, he's you know, he's a wealthy man. He'd got a big house with um with a bungalow adjacent to us, and and we were put up in this bungalow, and uh, and it was a beautiful weekend, and you know, um, and as I say, the music was fabulous. What was what was great was as as well was it was the last time I saw Lou Reed before he died. And I'd, the previous time I'd seen Lou, it was brilliant. I'd seen him with uh, Anthony of Anthony and the Johnsons singing. But it was very formal. Well, it wasn't very formal. He'd got his karate teacher dancing on stage. But it, it, was, it was restrained, as I say. And Lou was on his best behaviour. Um, and he's, at Hot Farm, the vibe was really nice. You know, the weather was... was was good and everybody was happy. Iggy Pop was happy. Patty Smith was happy. Brian Ferry was happy. Morrissey wasn't happy, you know. But who'd expect um, that neo-Nazi bastard to be happy anyway? Uh, and who cares? Um, but but Lou came on, and he was in a foul mood, and he cranked up the volume, made it as unpleasant as possible. Played with his back to the audience played nothing that nobody had ever heard before. Satellite of Love is the only song that he played that, that you know, a, a, somebody who wasn't a devout Lou Reed fan would would know. And and he just cranked it up, kicked a lot of uh, things around the stage, you know, swore at the band, swore at the audience. And it was brilliant seeing Lou like that, you know. And I'm so glad that I saw... Uh, I saw Lou in those circumstances before before he died, and of course it was the last time I saw Prince as well. Um, I'd seen Prince in at the height of his success and um, heresy to a lot of people, but um, I found it all a bit self-indulgent and a bit. Um, I wasn't swept away when I saw him in the 80s, but here he was, sort of working towards. I come back to the wrong word, but but showing what how great he was, and he was absolutely amazing. Um, they arrived at the last minute. He got a huge band, and they uh, started with "Let's Go Crazy," which he used as the sound check. He sound checked himself while they performed, and then they played hit after hit after hit, and he was this ball of energy running around, playing immaculate guitar, singing, never missing a, a beat. He was brilliant. And he'd been playing for perhaps about an hour and 20 minutes. And then uh, he put his foot up onto a monitor and sort of shook his head back and, and looked out at the crowd. And he said, how many hits have I got? I could be here until next summer. And he wasn't wrong. It was amazing. It was great. So it was great seeing uh, seeing Prince in in all his glory before he too uh, departed from uh, planet Earth. Um, so um, let's play a song because I've been rambling there, haven't I? Uh, let's play something by Suicide because even though they were awful at Hammersmith, uh, they are one of my favourite bands. And I know we haven't played anything in any of the shows. So uh, let's play Rocket USA by Suicide. Rocket, Rocket USA. 
Okay, so um, at the same time that I am feeling ill and trying to negotiate um, shorter hours, my mother has become noticeably ill. She's um, getting forgetful. She keeps buying things that she's got lots of, and um, she's losing interest in things. She can't concentrate on the news, what isn't interested in the newspaper anymore. And it is clear that um, some form of dementia has, has started. And uh, this accelerates rapidly from noticing it uh, within two months. Um, my mother is, 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 is getting to the point where uh, she barely knows me. She, you know, most, most of the time she doesn't know me. And, um, not just for that, but because I am feeling desperately ill as well. Um, I resign from work and come out of work. And it, and it was good timing because it meant that I was there to support my mother as, as ill as I was. She needed somebody. And it also gave me the opportunity to go and find out what was wrong with me, which I did. 
and um, I'd got I'd got a serious uh, heart condition um, that was uh, I went through lots of tests. The process is long and not always pleasant. Lots of scans, lots of needles going in you, lots of weird thing. I remember being in, in Stepping Hill Hospital having one procedure done where they put a kind of wire through um, your groin and up towards your heart and you, you're uh, you, you're watching it all on a, on a screen and you can feel it and it's not painful and, and clearly it's not dangerous either but it's just very it's such an odd feeling and it is disconcerting um, you know, it's unnatural, isn't it? I mean, seeing this thing sort of inside your body, this this wire, and uh, to calm myself down, and I was lay there, and I and I started um, singing Leonard Cohen's "Bird on a Wire." They must have thought I was very, the doctors must have thought I was very blasé about the whole affair, but I wasn't. It was, it was the opposite. Anyway, that proved to be no good. All that proved was that uh, that procedure wasn't going to work for me. And I needed um, a, a double heart bypass, um, so uh, I started preparing myself um, for that while trying to look after me with my mother, who was rapidly going bad hill downhill, um, and and that was making me sad, overwhelmingly, but also angry because the system. Uh, seemed to be working very much against her in that it was almost as if she had to be seen to fail before anything was done. You know, she had to fall over before you got this. You know, she had to break a hip before she got that. Um, there was nothing preventative about it. There was no no real assistance at all. And it, it was heartbreaking uh, watching my mum suffer like that and, and I felt terrible, um, terrible too. Um, as is my want, um, I didn't stop um, my musical endeavours. In fact, I was playing a lot of gigs because Kill Pretty were um, a popular proposition at the time. It was a stupid thing to do. I was risking uh, uh, having, having a heart attack on stage. Between songs, I was um, having to treat myself with uh, with sprays to to sort myself out. I was medicating between between songs, such was um, the severity of my condition. Um, I shouldn't have been doing it, but but nobody sort of uh, put their arm up on my back. It, I was doing what I wanted to do, uh, but it was. Um, it wasn't a clever thing to do, and it was making me aware of how ill I, I was as well, because uh, because I would feel terrible after after it all. Um, so things things sort of go on like this. We start recording an album. Well, we don't start recording. We go and record it in a weekend. We record an album in in Liverpool. Um, with a fella called Steve Powell, who was who was really good, um, and I couldn't um, I couldn't keep redoing vocals. I said to Steve right from the start, if we set the band up, you know, and 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 you you record them in that room, 
and, and I just had a, a hand mic just sat behind him in the control room and I said and if you just record these guide vocals and that's all that they'll be Steve you know and uh, he, he, he realized the severity of what I was going through and he listened to to me and uh, and, and he made a very good job of um, of, of making it making it sound good in fact it's it's one of my favorite recordings um things were um on an even keel within the band uh i was you know i wasn't having to fight for for what i wanted at that stage you know uh, I've, I've got this wooden um fish that uh, that makes a, a very strange noise for instance and you blow into it and uh, I managed to place a wooden fish on it um, as, as time went by the, you know um, the people in the band wouldn't have allowed that they just said no it's terrible it's not musical <laughs> but anyway at that stage it was okay and the songs were um, were very personal there were songs about my deteriorating health and about my worries um, I might not survive all this, and also about uh, my mum's dementia. So um, we'll play you a play you a track from the album that became uh, "Dark Heart" by Kilpritty, and this is a track called "Sylvia Fading." <laughs> going round in circles these days you tell the same old story ask me the same old questions I reply patiently hoping that you can find a way through the confusion through the confusion though in my heart I know it's too late worse will be the only change deterioration as you age this was always what you feared tried and tried to stem the tide of decay I don't want to be a burden I hear you say don't let that happen oh I pray and now you're lost in a dark wood the sun can't penetrate there's no clarity everything is a haze everything's got jumbled up there's no logic or order there's just no logic at all Time is shifting in strange patterns, fluctuating, hiding in a corner in the darkest recesses, the secrets that you seek, but now you've lost the key. They're gone forever. Only fragments now remain, only fragments. And they are not enough. They torment you, but give you no clue as to who you are and who you've been and where you are, and what does it mean, and who am I, you have to ask. Our conversations, our conversations going round in circles these days, our conversations round and round.
So, um, at the third attempt, I've been in hospital twice and prepped up for an operation and then sent home. At the third attempt, uh, I'm uh, operated on. Um, strange operations, uh, heart bypasses. Um, they tried to explain it all to me, but I'm a bit squeamish, so I didn't listen. But I do know that they, sort of pull, they break your um, sternum open and pull your ribs apart and then pull your heart out and put it like in a in a sort of a, a cup. Well, they do the operation around it. Um, and it's very painful. And I woke up um, in um, intensive care, wired, which was like something out of science fiction wired up, incredibly wired up on this sort of cross, like some sort of a broken messiah. Um, and uh, and I had a night in there and then they moved me onto the ward. And um, I was, um, because I'm, I'm not particularly slender, they use more anaesthetic than they'd like to. And then because of the pain, you know, there's a, a lot of morphine going down. And um, I was hallucinating a lot. For some reason, I started obsessing about the uh, Lancashire mill town of Burnley. In fact, I wrote a song all about Burnley in, in my head there that um, that that, uh, that I still like very much. Um, it it was um, it's odd. I wasn't comfortable, um, and and these hallucinations were fairly uh, benign at first. But then on, on a particular day, I just had a bad day where I was uncomfortable. I was put in this tiny little ancient wheelchair and it hurt me back. And the back pain, uh, it's just with everything sort of conspiring, it set me off on some sort of downward spiral. And uh, at that evening I was on the ward and they fetched this uh, poor man in who um, was gibbering away. He was, he, was, he was very, very frightened. That was obvious. And he was talking very loudly to him, himself. And I was feeling really frail and he was getting on my nerves. Not that it's his fault. And he'd been allowed this radio and he'd got this classic rock radio station on. And I hate classic rock with a passion. Not, you know, not... Um, I don't just dislike it, you know, but it, it, it was all... All this, um, that Death Leopards and uh, Iron Maidens and 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 then it, that was bad enough. But then Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin come on, and it is the song that I hate most in all the world. And there were tears in my eyes, and I'd bent um, my fingernails into my palms, trying to cut my palms with my fingernail to try and black out this horrible, horrible noise, and it was driving me absolutely insane, Led Zeppelin. Um, I can't, really can't stand it, driving me mad. Anyway, at that point, it became a sort of bedtime, you know, um, lights out, and um, I attempted to go to sleep, but every time I closed my eyes, um, it was acting as a trigger for, for really wild hallucinations, and I wasn't just hallucination, uh, it was, it was more voices in, in truth. I was, uh, there was a, a pair of old gentlemen in the ward who had the unfortunate habit of talking in the sleep. And I was convinced they were plotting against me. And then at some point, 
heard the doctors doing the rounds and they were out to get me and I was very very frightened I was trying to cling on to some semblance of sanity by keeping my eyes open because as I say every time I closed them um, it acted as a trigger anyway this is only three days after you know my chest has been ripped apart um, I got myself out of bed and went to the night station and, and, and I said, I was, I was sobbing uncontrollably by this stage. I said, you've got to get me out of here, you know. I said, um, I'm going to hurt some, somebody. And it, and it won't necessarily be me, which wasn't a threat. It was just how, how, how sort of wired and, and weird I was. Anyway, I, um, I set off down this corridor to the day room because that was, the lights were on in there. And the television in there it's all very brightly colored you know and yellows and oranges and things and i thought if i go in there and keep my eyes open I'll, I'll, because i'm aware that i'm hallucinating i might be able to stop them so i go in there and i've got my eyes you know pinned and pulling them open um all very odd and occasionally people are coming looking through the door i don't know how long i was in there i might have been in there 10 minutes might be in there two hours i've no idea and you're in that state time you you just don't know but I was sat in there and um, trying to sort things out. And, and then the drinks machine spoke to me and it said to me, um, go and get them before they get you. And so I set off back up the corridor towards the ward. And uh, even though I had no matches or a lighter, uh, I'd got it in my head that I was going to burn these men in the beds who were, who were talking in the sleep, and I thought they were plotting against me. Uh, so I'm shuffling along up this corridor, and then I stopped, and I realized that this drinks machine to talk to me wasn't there. There wasn't a drinks machine in that room. I'd hallucinated the drinks machine to pass me this message, uh, which just further messed with my head. Um, so I, I was, uh, it sent me off into a, a spiral of, um, of, of of sort of uh, paranoia and 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 these voices remain uh, with me remain with me to this day not to to that ex extent um, but I was not in in a in a good good way and um, because I was in such a bad way um, they let me they let me go home earlier than I should have done. That too proved to be. It, I was really relieved to go home, um, but I wasn't. I wasn't well. I remember remember getting home and, and being propped up on some pillows in the, the bedroom because because I was I couldn't lie down, and and I was just sat there trying to be quiet, and um, a voice came from the wardrobe and said, uh, "Who the fuck do you think you are? Sat there like you're the fucking, you know, like you're something special." And, and I started arguing back then, and you know, I shouted at the wardrobe. I shouted, "I am the king of this bedroom, and I'll do whatever the fuck I want." Um, <sighs> that was bad enough, my mental state. But by the next morning, um, I'd started with a chest infection. Now I've got a broken sternum, and I'm coughing constantly. And I was in agony. I was I was getting no sleep over the next 
72 hours i don't think i slept for a moment uh, i was just coughing and retching and the person looking after me was constantly in tears begging me to go back to hospital but i couldn't stand the thought of that i thought i'd sooner just have a big heart attack and, and die you know um i was in a state and, and what had happened was i should have received some aftercare but somehow I'd slipped through the system. I didn't hear anything from the hospital for another month. Um, fair, fair play to him, you know, because I've not got much, uh, many nice things to say about him. But the lump um, was a huge help at the time. He he sort of uh, came and ran me to the doctor and things like that, and he was uh, he was willing willing to uh, help out where I needed him. Um, so eventually they did get in touch with me and, and the chest infection had gone by then. I still wasn't good and, and they sent me some rehabilitation classes. And, and that was weird because um, I went, got to my first rehabilitation class and there was somebody who was, had been at school with there. It was the first time I'd seen them since I left school. And, uh, and, and we attended these classes, three or four classes together it was about a six week course twice or three times a week and after two weeks he wasn't there and i inquired and, and uh he'd have the same operation as me and it, and he died um so so it was you know it wasn't wasn't a good time um so um because i'm stupid <laughs> uh five weeks after this major operation um i played my first gig <laughs> um i'd promised i'd do it um it was it was a gig at, at gulliver's in manchester and uh and my friend aiden aiden cross um was was doing it as a benefit for cancer research his mother had died of cancer the year before and i'd promised i'd do it and i was determined to do it so I turned up, uh, my friend Larry, uh, who's a guitar player in, in James, turned up not to watch. He said, I'm not watching you do this. Um, he's, he's, he's said, he said, you know, that would just be ghoulish. He said, I've come just to see you and tell you to go home. You know, use your brain. You shouldn't be doing this. You know, there was... Um, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have been doing it, obviously. You know, five weeks after massive operation i shouldn't have been doing it but psychologically i needed to do it at that stage i couldn't speak you know the anesthetic was all in my, my throat so i didn't know what happened but i got on the stage and the adrenaline kicked in and i was able to perform and after the first song there was so much love in the room and and people and i felt this wave of relief and love and applause and it was um and it was massively uplifting to um to do that um so shall we play a song yes let's play a song um let's play something by the mob we're going to play the mob no dogs fly here the mob of course were uh very instrumental in uh, in a lot of things that i did at this stage of time the mob uh, through their uh, all the madmen label um released kill kitty's um dark heart album so this is the mob no dubs fly here
of course, while all this is happening, there is still the problem with my mum and um, inevitably she's fallen, she's broken a hip, ended up in hospital, then ended up in one care home that is not suitable for her needs and uh, resent her presence there. Um, and then she finally gets funded to move into a care home um, for dementia care. Um, and it's horrific, it's absolutely horrible. You go and you, you think it's okay, but it isn't. And my mum was um, in a shocking state. I never knew quite, I went every day to see her and I never quite knew what um, what I would encounter. It could be depressing because she would barely um, utter a word or she would just lie in bed and refuse to get up or she could be absolutely um, buoyant and childish or she could be, and, and this and most frequently, she were, felt terrorised and, and uh, persecuted and felt huge guilt. She thought that she had lost the children. She was constantly um, begging me to go out looking for the children who had, who had got lost, the children being myself and my brother. And I try and explain that, you know, I was her child and had grown up. And she'd say, no, no, why are you saying that to me? And, and scream at me. And uh, so all, all that was, was extremely, depressing and it's you you just you it just becomes a way of life and but it but it is um it's very trying and it, and it takes a lot out of you and the music i suppose was um was was good as a um a barrier against that it gave me some way of expressing myself i was writing a lot of songs about that, and while I was rehabilitating myself from um, from from my operation, I uh, I started work on um, what was to be the next uh, Kill Pretty album, and uh, I remember uh, my friend Tony Thornborough coming round with with biscuits and finding me surrounded by Beatles albums, and I wasn't trying to sound like the Beatles, you know, I'm not in Oasis. But I was what I was. I was trying to take inspiration from the Beatles, particularly from the Beatles' White Album, in the diversity of their influences. And I wanted to do this um, album that showed a, a whole um, range of, of sort of styles and and emotions. And I was I was sort of putting that um, together. With, we were playing a lot. We played a really good gig um, in London at, at the the Dome. I remember um, at Tuffin Old Green with, uh, but the Mob, who we've just played, put on, and uh, it was another one of these uh, sort of anarcho jamborees. So there was uh, the Mob and us and Andy T and the Astronauts, you know, and it was a real event. It was. It was good, it was exciting, and as always, they paid us a relatively a, a lot of money, which would go in the fund to do some um, some recording. So um, let's play something from that night. Let's one one of my great friends who I've not mentioned is, is Andy Fawley, Andy T, 
And Andy, um, sort of back in the day, uh, made a single on Crass Records with, with Penny Rimbo, um, did all the sort of electronics behind it. And Andy did this horrific um, thing about vivisection. And he's a very passionate and humane man, is Andy. And um, this was a piece that he was performing uh, when I was playing a lot of gigs with him. And it's um, it's called Sophie. And it's about Sophie Lancaster, who lived quite close to Andy. And she was um, the young teenage girl who was uh, kicked to death by other youths um, for the crime of looking different. She sort of uh, adopted a kind of goth look and it was seen as being too weird and she was um, kicked to death, a schoolgirl kicked to death for it. So this is Andy T, Sophie. Violent prejudice burns while hatred flows. 
Is, is it's it's taken 18 months since uh, her illness first became apparent and every day has been hell for her and hell for uh, me and me and my brother and uh, finally it seems the end is nigh my mother is in a dreadful state she is now um, the circulation in her right leg a left leg, I do apologise, has completely gone. Her leg is, is turned completely black. And if there was any hope of a sort of, um, if she wasn't at such an advanced age, such advanced illness, her leg wouldn't need to be amputated. She's also got stomach cancer. Uh, now she can't eat. Um, and, and and we're just waiting for her to die, to put her out of, of her abject misery. Uh, basically, she's in Tameside Hospital, and um, we don't really want her to die on on the ward in in there. Um, we we want her to have a bit more dignity. And um, at the last at the last minute, uh, we we managed to get her a place in um, in a hospice, in a local hospice, and. Um, and I'll forever be uh, be grateful for that. She was in Willow Wood Hospice in Staley Bridge, and um, you know she she was sort of sedated, so she was at, at peace as 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 she was there, and um, and her suffering was over, and it was just a matter of of waiting for her um, to die, really. So. I sat with her on uh, on a day. I sat with her for for um, for nine or ten hours, uh, just holding her hand, talking to her. Because you don't know if any of it gets through. It probably doesn't, but you don't know. That is the simple thing. At one point, um, I started singing to her. My mother had always liked me to sing. There was lots of songs she liked me to sing. And uh, and one that will perhaps come as a surprise to people, you know, uh, my mother was was 87 when she died. Um, 
was um, Alice Cooper's No More Mr. Nice Guy. Um, and so I started singing No More Mr. Nice Guy. You know, I used to be such a sweet, sweet thing till they got a hold of me. I open doors for little old ladies. I help the blinds to see. I got no friends because they read the papers that can be seen with me. And I'm getting real shut down and I'm feeling mean. No more, Mr. Nice Guy. No more, Mr. Clee. No more, Mr. Nice Guy. They say he's sick. He's obscene. So I'm singing that. <laughs> and the nurse. Come, comes in out of the corridor and she says, oh, is that you singing to your mum? I said, said, yeah, a bit of shame faith. Um, and she said, oh, it is beautiful. <laughs> and, uh, that's that's my mum putting words in your voice. She's the only one who's ever called my singing beautiful um, before. Anyway, um, I was there, let's say, for eight or nine hours. And, um, and then I... I I um I gave way to 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 my brother and my brother sat there and uh, and then later on that night he phoned me up and said you know my mum's passed away and I think we were both there's the sadness obviously you know that goes without saying but I think we were both very very relieved. Um, not for ourselves, we were relieved that my mum's suffering had finally stopped, that she was um, at peace. And again, I then took a, a decision. Um, I'd got a gig the next day. I was playing at the um, at the punk festival in Blackpool. And I thought, what am I going to do? My mum would want me to go and play. And so, um, so off I went to uh, to Blackpool and and played a gig, very much sort of going through the motions. Really, it was very hard to uh, to concentrate on on what I was doing, um, but it got me out of the way for a day, um, and and that's where uh, I'm going to. Uh, got to stop because uh, as I say there's nothing good in uh, that episode particularly and uh, we've got another episode we've got part two of nothing good as well oh it's a lot better than that so I'm uh, because it's short I'm going to play you two songs um, both of them came out on German Shepherd records um, and friend friends of mine so the first first record is um, Cleaning Woman by Poppycock which is um, the um, vehicle that Una Baines um, expresses herself musically in these days. And Una is a great friend and was a great friend to me at that time. Um, and this is fabulous record, uh, makes me happy. And then I'm going to play um, Silly Moo by Modal Roberts and myself, a collaboration that we did because... Um, Modal passed away a few years after as as well, <coughs> and uh, you know. So this is in memory of Modal, and it's fun. After all that dourness, uh, stay tuned and listen to Silly Moo, and um, 
have a laugh. So thank you, Phil, once again for engineering us and uh, facilitating my barrage of words. <coughs> and thank you, dear listeners. Thank you all. Say hello to Helen for me, Phil. Um, love you all. Take care. And um, we'll do another one shortly. Bye-bye. Say
So as the tune disappears, so must I. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank you all involved. That's just two of us, I think. <laughs> uh, bigger selves up here, Ian. Right. Any comments you want to make, go to Flow Backwards on Facebook and leave us whatever comments you want to make. Good or bad. They're both useful. Um, the next episode is coming along soon and stay safe.